Before we begin, a note that we had a few technical glitches with this episode. You might hear a few skips and jumps. You'll also hear a low hum at the very beginning of our interview with Julie. We did our best to iron out the technical glitches. You may recognize them a little bit. Uh, the hum will go away. It's a little annoying right at the beginning. I understand that. We couldn't get rid of it, uh, but it will go away fairly quickly. So if you hang with the interview, I think you'll find this uh, to be a very interesting discussion with Julie Becker. Adobe, I'm very excited today to have Julie Becker with us. I'm really excited about this particular one. There's so many things about this that resonated with me. Old friendships, people reconnecting after decades and just, you know, doing remarkable work. So this was a really good, I'm looking forward to having a conversation about this. Julie has been a friend of mine going back to childhood and is doing very interesting work as the executive director of a place called the St. Francis House in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Welcome to The Key and the Kite. I am Adobe Oniwinde. I'm in Lagos, Nigeria, while Carter is in Denver, Colorado. Today, we have a conversation with Julie Becker. Julie is the executive director of St. Francis House in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. St. Francis House helps people move from homelessness to hope by giving them a place to stay while they build a new path in life. In 2020, Kello TV celebrated Julie as a remarkable woman finalist in Kello Land. Well, first of all, thank you again for doing this. You and I have known each other for a long time. I'm so impressed with the work you're doing. And when I started thinking about this podcast, one of the things that I thought of is I, I, I just thought, how great would it be to get to tell the story of the work that Julie's doing and, and oh. the work at St. Francis House? So thank you for joining me. Thank you. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about what St. Francis House is and, and the work that you do there. Sure. Well, the St. Francis House is an ecumenical ministry to the homeless. We started um, our agency, became a reality back in 1987. So how this all started was uh, the late Bishop Dudley uh, had a building that the Benedictine sisters uh, moved out of Sioux Falls to go to Yankton. So he had an empty convent and he didn't know what to do with it. So his vision was to create another homeless shelter. So back in 1987, he re uh, across which I call congregational lines to uh, Reverend David Holmes at First Lutheran Church. And that is how St. Francis House became to be. The, the Catholic Diocese gave the building and First Lutheran Church gave the first six months of operating expenses to provide another homeless shelter in our community. As we have progressed and we get into now 2021, when we kicked off our capital campaign to build a new building, the really ironic part was we had a leader within the Catholic Diocese, uh, Monsignor James Doyle, who was actually the first director and uh, his funeral was today. He just recently uh, passed. Sorry. He gave um, some seed money as well as a member from First Lutheran Church gave seed money so that we could begin purchasing the houses that were on the prop on our 
block that we would use until it was time for us to demolish to build our new building. So what a great message that started back in 1987 and then still two entities from those same congregations came together to help us to begin our Homelessness to Hope Capital Campaign. I'm curious about when someone is homeless, how they get connected to St. Francis House and, and how does that work? Well, there's several different areas. Uh, to be honest with you, the homeless in Sioux Falls and across the country have a very strong network networking ability. Usually they are able to tap into uh, resources such as in Sioux Falls, our soup kitchen is called the banquet. So that is a great opportunity. Uh, avenue for people to be able to stop in and say, okay, where are the places in Sioux Falls for us to be able to go? Another um, opportunity, which is now, which wasn't before, is, of course, social media. Many homeless, even though they don't have uh, a home, they still have the public libraries where they're able to be able to utilize Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all other avenues to be able to keep in touch with family. They're able to go out and be able to do those searches, and then they're able to also find us um, that way as well. And then unfortunately, we have individuals that have stayed with us once that um, go out in the community, do their best to get self-sufficient, but life happens such as a pandemic when many people lost their jobs. And then they need to be able to come back to us to be able to kind of get back on their feet again and get a job and get some money saved and things like that again. I'm curious, you've been doing this, you've been in this role for a while and and as I was thinking about the work you do and looking at your website and, and reading some of the stories on your website, I, I can't imagine the moment that your guests that come and stay at St. Francis House, I can't imagine that moment that they must go through when they realize that they're homeless. Have, have, right. you, have you talked to some of them about that and what that moment's like and what they go through in that moment? For each individual that comes through our door, um, that's why we call them guests because they're a guest in our home. They all have a different experience and it is pretty amazing to sit and listen. For some, they've never had any other idea that they were technically homeless because that was the way of life that they had. And when I look back at being raised in a small community of Laverne where everybody knew everyone, that was the... I couldn't fathom that, yeah. you know, I had a rough over my head. My parents were there. I had my own bed. And for some of our guests, they've never had that. When you look at the movie, The Blind Side, when he's talking to Sandra Bullock about never having one. And she said, what a room of your own. And he says a bed. That is true reality. There are many people that they've slept on a floor or they've had to sleep three in a queen size bed because that is that was what was normal to them. And they didn't see that that was anything wrong with that. Um, others who have had everything and they've had a home and they've had um, cars and everything else. And then whether it be their addiction or just life in general, and they lose that, it is a very traumatic event for them, for them to be able to process how this happened in their life and how they've lost everything. So our programming is really focused on individuality 
um, and not a cookie cutter type program where everybody gets treated the same. I mean, there's the basic foundation of our programming, but our case managers, our case managers, excuse me, work very diligently to get to know the person, not the stigma. I'm curious about um, when someone comes to St. Francis House, kind of what that initial experience is like. You offer a lot of services. When they come in the door the first time, what's that experience like for them? Well, to be honest with you, it depends a little bit if they stayed with us before. If they stayed with us before in the old convent and then they come into this brand new, beautiful building, many of them are just amazed because, to be honest with you, Carter, I did not design this building of this was Julie Becker's idea of what it should be. I've been here 16 years and I took every comment that every guest has ever said that they wish they would have had in a building. And that's what we did inside this building. So I think a big thing of credibility that we earned was they walk in and they see that we listened. We heard what they had to say of what they would have liked to see in a new building. For others to come in and see that it isn't um, your typical stereotypical shelter where it's a big room with tons of beds, where here um, we have two people to a room. There's plenty of space for people to be able to be with others, but yet also if they want some privacy to be by themselves, we really wanted to focus on some of those basic dignity items that sometimes are overlooked, Um, especially in our new building. We are finally truly accessible to individuals with disabilities as well as individuals that have health issues, as well as individuals who are transgender. And we're very proud in the fact that we're able to meet the needs of the varying individuals who walk through our doors. It's really interesting to look at look at the pictures online of your, of your new facility, which looks amazing. I think most people do think of a homeless shelter as some big room with cots, right? Throughout mm-hmm. it. And, and that's kind of the idea that we have in our heads. And we also think of maybe just a place to sleep and not necessarily a place to live. But what you're offering people is something that's a little, little different than that. You know, for example, you know, besides that they have their bedrooms, you know, we have a nice lounge where they can sit just like in a college the dorm, you know, there's the nice lounge where everybody hung out. The RAs, our office was there if you needed them. Um, there's laundry there. We also have a very large dining room. So when the weather is not nice, or of course, during the pandemic, you know, we kind of parted all the tables and chairs and we had cornhole tournaments in the middle of our dining room. You know, we have uh, a great program in our community that's um, called um, Levitt at the Falls. It's an outdoor concert. Well, because the pandemic, they did kind of this Levitt in the living room. Well, we tapped it in and did it Levitt in the dining room. So we had concerts. So even just yesterday, last night, we did a big picnic out in our parking lot. We had one of our volunteers came in with her keyboard and was playing music. You know, we like to be able to bring the events in so that they see that it's a sense of normalcy instead of, oh, well, we aren't able to have those things because of where we're staying and what our status is. We want them to have every single opportunity like I have in my life. I mean, we I spent time with family and friends on Memorial Day. We wanted them to have that same opportunity here. I'm really curious about the way you're describing all of this, and, and you mentioned the word dignity, and I think so often dignity is not a word that we associate 
with homeless people? How should we react as individuals when we see someone who's homeless? Before we get to the individual, how individuals should mm-hmm. react when we see that, talk first about the importance of the, of dignity and, and, and making sure that you're providing space where people can feel that dignity and what that's, what that's like. Well, you know, first of all, and maybe it's just how we were raised in a small town, I, I really focus on that people who come through our doors, they're good people. Um, they just maybe have made some bad decisions that have produced not good outcomes. But they are always someone's mother, brother, sister, uncle. They are somebody. And I would think that at my worst, if I was in that situation, how how would I want someone to approach me and to treat me? So this is why when I said before, the individuals who stay with us are called guests. Just like if Carter, you were staying at my home, you'd be a guest in my home. Sure. Um, you're not a high school classmate in my home, you're a guest in my home. And the same is with the individuals that uh, we have staying with us. They are, they're, they're good people. And sometimes um, they need some tough love. Um, They need some accountability, but most of the time, I would say about 95% of the time, they are wanting to have someone walk along with them to help them see how they can do things different in their life so they don't continue this pattern of um, living on the streets and surfing from couch to couch and wanting to maintain their sobriety so that they can continue to have healthy relationships with their um, children and their family. And on the website, you talk a lot about services that you provide or or connections that you make to other services for mm-hmm. your guests beyond just being a, a room in, in the house. And so talk a little bit about the other support services that you provide these folks uh, to help them gain some stability and, sure. and then make the transition uh, into their own place. Well, that's probably one of, for on a donor's side, a donor's frustration is, is when nonprofit agencies don't work together because we have to work smarter instead of harder. And they want to see, um, a big word is that collaboration. And so I'm a true believer in sharing resources as well as I don't like to duplicate services. So here's a prime example. We are a zero tolerance facility, meaning individuals can't be using drugs or under the influence of alcohol in our program. But I do not have a chemical dependency counselor on staff because we have numerous agencies in our community that provide those services. So we network with them. We, we make sure that our guests are going to treatment. We communicate if they miss a treatment session, then that agency contacts our case manager so we can find out what's going on. Why did you miss? Is it a transportation issue? Did you forget? Do we need to give you reminders? Another one is every Friday, we now have a standing appointment with Department of Motor Vehicles so that we can take our guests so that they can go and get their state issued IDs because in order to get a job, you have to have at least a photo ID. And so it's building those relationships with other entities in the community because 
Many times our guests will just throw up their hands and just say, you know what, forget it. I didn't have a piece of paper. I don't know how to get it. I'm supposed to have two pieces of mail. How can I have two pieces of mail when I don't even have an address? It can be very frustrating. And so we're here to try and break down those barriers by building partnerships with the agencies so that we can, as I kind of say, we kind of walk them in the back door to be able to get those services, whereas sometimes walking in that front door can be quite intimidating. And it's not stating that the back door is a bad thing. It's just, uh, you know, it's who you know and how you can get people through and making sure that that round cylinder fits in that square hole. It it works. How long do people stay at St. Francis House? We require them to stay a minimum of 60 days, um, but they can stay up to a year. And so if we get someone that stays that 60 days on average that we kind of call that the honeymoon phase, (laughs) if they stay that usually people stay between six and nine months, few people stay less, few people, it gets to be that year. And we have to kind of push the birdie out of the nest and say, you know what, Uh, it's time for you to transition. Doesn't mean that you can't stay in contact with us. We can still do outreach, but we got to have you start getting on your feet so you don't become dependent on um, the agency. In looking at your website, reading some of these stories, so much of what you, what you talk about on the website is the relationships that you build with these individuals. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about that. And do you now have a whole lot of friends that have come through St. Francis House and gotten back on their feet and stay in touch with you? You know, I'm going to be really honest with you. There's a lot of people who know me. Um, there are some that aren't real happy with me because sometimes <laughs> I got to be that tough mother that if they're not, you know, going to work or they're not paying on their debts, that, you know, I, I got to be that mother figure to them. And sometimes they get mad and they leave, but they always know that they can come back and we can try this again. So just last week, I had a, a gentleman come in and he said, true story, sitting around with a group of people. And he said, Julie, the hardest thing I had to do was to pass that meth pipe past me without taking a hit. And he said, the only thing I could think of is I can't be here. I didn't work so hard at St. Francis to lose this all by taking one hit on this meth pipe. Yeah. Then he said, I can't be with that group of people anymore because those are people I used with, I have to go back and I have to start the program again and get strong. And so then Randy came back in and he's um, doing the program again. That's the nice part is I always say, just like you and me, I may not have my childhood home anymore, but I can always go home. Sure. And that's the message that we leave with all of our guests, even the ones that have left on not the best of terms and maybe they haven't said some nice things. You know, that is the course of what we deal with. This is dealing with individuals with addictions. And I always tell people that nobody can hit a grand slam their first time up to bat. Sometimes it takes a couple um, times up to the plate. And so we always have that door that welcomes them in and we start again. And um, hopefully that's the time that we catch them. And we, as we say, we get them to turn the corner. For you and the staff at St. Francis House, it's got to be a rewarding job. It's also got to be a little emotionally tough at times. Yes. um, You know, it's really tough when, uh, unfortunately, if someone, for example, might be on supervision and they have to get detained. um, There's also times when we've had, um, unfortunately, family members, um, a family in our family unit where maybe the parent was using and 
the children have to go into CPS custody and they, it doesn't even phase them. They're just like, yep, you know, mom's going to jail again. You know, that is what's really heartbreaking is the, that they're just, I mean, they're just used to it. They're, you know, it's, it's not even upsetting. There's not even tears cried anymore. Um, but on the opposite side, when um, I take successes on the individual, I mean, it might be that someone is sober for 12 days and that's the longest they've ever been sober in their entire life. And I have to say, you know what, we got 12 days, maybe next time it'll be 13. We just never can allow them to lose hope. And that is our, that's part of our mission statement, statement, moving people from homelessness to hope. We always have to make sure that they can see that there's some form of light out there or as you know, Motel 6, the light is always on. Um, we just want to make sure that they always know that there is a place for them to land. You had a uh, banquet at some point in the past few months. Um, and I watched mm-hmm. the video of your of your speech at the banquet. And, oh. and you talked about the lights always being on. I think it was a powerful moment to think about the fact that somewhere, you know, in, in Sioux Falls, there's a place where the light's always on for folks if they need it. Carter, it's interesting that you brought that up because when we, the last night in our old building, when I walked through and I shut lights off for the, for the first time. I mean, because there were lights that never got shut off because they were always on, always on. And to actually go through that building and shut all the lights off and to lock the door from the outside, it had never, it had not happened. It's amazing. And so to do that, it was one of the most probably moving experiences of my life. And then to come around the corner and at that time, um, back in December of 19, before the pandemic and to walk into our beautiful new building and to know that the community built this building. I mean, they, everybody came together and, you know, then we survived the pandemic. If we wouldn't have been in this building, we, I, I know for sure there would be no St. Francis house because there's no way we would would have been able to social distance. There's no way we would have been able to keep people healthy. So, I mean, so many things just happened at the right time for us to be able to do this and to keep people safe and housed and, and still taking new people because we were able to isolate them because we were in this new home. I'm wondering about what you have learned during your time at St. Francis House that maybe you didn't know coming in that sticks with you. What has this experience taught you? Well, I will tell you, if you would have told me when I was just getting done with college that I was going to be the director of a homeless shelter, I would have said, "Hmm, I don't think so, because that was not the avenue that I was going to be going down. I think the biggest thing that I have learned, and I think that if you ask the guests, they would probably tell you would be my heart is that I have the most forgiving heart Um, because there are times when guests have really been cruel and not said good things or they have not done good things. And um, I truly believe there's only one person to judge us. And that is the man that is way upstairs. And so I think that's the compassion that you just, you can't take it personally and you have to just understand that sometimes it's the disease that or the addiction that is talking and they lash out at the ones that they really know that can help them the most. Yeah. I want to get back to that question that I asked earlier that, that we didn't talk about, which is what is a compassionate response? If I see someone who's homeless, I think a lot of times you just don't know what to do or you don't know what to think, or you don't even know how to think about it and how to be compassionate in that, in that moment. What would your advice be for folks? 
Well, first of all, I think everybody has to be at their own comfort level. I mean, there are individuals who will go out and they will do more outreach. And I think that that is amazing because that is what their comfort level is. If someone is not comfortable with um, going and talking to someone one-on-one, then start with an agency. Um, Find an agency and start working through that agency and get to volunteer and get to know the individuals who are coming there. That's when you're going to actually find out that they'll get to know you. And that is how that network of communication through the homeless population will spread. I am a firm believer that I never give anyone homeless on the streets money. I do not believe in that. I believe in giving the resources Um, Just because we have such a huge addiction issue in our community, I focus more on if you're hungry, I will refer you to the banquet or I will get you a meal, but I'm not going to give you $5 because I don't know what you're going to be doing with that. That's my personal opinion. I would rather lead people to see that they can come to the St. Francis house and stay and they can get food and a shower and they get uh, clean clothing that is given to them instead of, well, just here's $5 because you know what, it's going to make me feel good at the end of the day because I gave someone $5 that maybe they got something to eat, but $5 isn't going to put a roof over their head when it's going to start storming out or if we're in the cold days of winter in our wonderful state of South Dakota. Yeah. I think I've read that from other from other folks who work um, on on homeless issues and work uh, for agencies like yours that would prefer that people got led or brought to an agency mm-hmm. where they could get more substantial help than than just giving right. them five bucks. I can't tell you how much I admire the work you've done. And one of the things that I'm really impressed with is the way you are connecting folks in Sioux Falls. One of the things that I thought about as I'm looking at all this is I think people need some degree of structure. And you provide that for individuals, but you're providing structure beyond just St. Francis House. And you're providing mm-hmm. a structure kind of within the greater Sioux Falls community to really help people out. And it's, it's just great work that you're doing. Well, I truly believe it's not just about St. Francis House. It's about our, for us, it's about our entire community. And you're right. When we have uh, donations that are brought to us and it's too excessive that we would not be able to use them, we work with the other agencies to help them out and say, hey, do you need this? Um, I don't know if you saw that this winter we took on the Keep Kelloland Warm and we gave out 1,700 coats to the homeless in our community And then that was including hats, scarves, mittens, the whole ball of wax. And it was about networking with 17 other agencies to provide coats to the people that they served. And it was bringing us all together for a greater cause so that nobody froze on the streets of Sioux Falls. That's amazing. Those Sioux Falls winters can be cold. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yours can be cold too. (laughs) Yeah, we do. All right. We're not quite as cold in Denver as as you are in Sioux Falls. Thank you, Julie. I really appreciate it. Yeah. No problem. I appreciate it much. So, Carter, I really enjoyed this conversation. So many 
things that resonated with me. Um, the idea of old friendships and people reconnecting and doing remarkable things, not just because I'm Catholic, but this particular work that Julie is doing really resonated with me because I was raised in a convent and, you know, she talked about converting an old convent when the nuns had moved away. And that brought back so many memories of my childhood in a convent and the sort of work that the nuns did. It took me down memory lane a fair amount. I'm not sure I remembered the story of you being raised in a convent. So my parents traveled a fair amount. Um, as you know, my parents are Nigerian and I was educated in England. And because they traveled a fair amount, it just made sense to have the kids in boarding school. So I went to a Catholic convent in a place called Hertfordshire in England, it was a convent run by the Faithful Companions of Jesus was the name of the order. And it was pretty much a 200-girl boarding school that was run by, by nuns. So I grew up really in a convent. What was that experience like? How did that impact you? You know, I come from a Catholic family. So mass and the church and, you know, the Vatican and Rome, all that was, you know, was, was quite normal to me. I lived in a convent for five years. Um, so we went through all the rituals, you know, we had weekends where we took vows of silence. On the flip side, it was also just a regular British boarding school with a regular curriculum where all our teachers were nuns, but they taught geography, physics, chemistry, biology. It's interesting yeah. now to, to transition yeah. back to, to the work that Julie's doing where where a Catholic church and a Lutheran church in Sioux Falls have come together mm. to to provide some space for people who, who don't have a home. I was really interested in in talking with Julie about the work she's doing mm. because what she's seeing is great results because she's such a connector of people and she connects with the guests that stay at St. Francis House, mm. but she also connects with other folks in the community that can provide some assistance to the guests as well. So what I found fascinating, first of all, the use of the word guest, I thought was just so human and, and so appropriate. I've actually never had a pleasant encounter with a homeless person. So when I was listening to this conversation, I was thinking, gosh, yeah. So, you know, they're regular people. We refer to them as guests. And I'll, I'll tell you a story. My very first encounter with a homeless person, I must have been about 19, 18 or 19. I'd moved from England from a very sheltered environment where we had nuns who taught about charity and just helping people and, and love. And I remember bumping into a homeless man outside a petrol station. You guys call them gas stations in the U.S. And I, I did what I thought was a decent thing to do. And I came out of, of the gas station. I bought him a sandwich and a drink, thinking I was doing a, a good thing. And he threw the drink at me, cursed me, used every curse word imaginable. And that really affected me, Carter. I was so traumatized by the experience. First of all, I was embarrassed by it, but I was also so traumatized that I actually made it a point never to approach or be approached by homeless people. I'm quite embarrassed to say that as a full-grown adult now. So listening to Julie's experience with homeless people in a shelter where they're lit, you know, they're regular people like you and I, who really have just fallen on, on hard times was actually very different from, you know, my experience and my view of, you know, homeless people anywhere in the world and especially the U.S. So what's the impact of the reset that Julie provided for you? So she talked about the categories of people. Some people come from, you know, having a very comfortable life and just fell on hard times. And I thought to myself, wow, I just couldn't imagine the idea that you would fall from 
from grace as it were, where you had a home and you had a good life and maybe as a result of an addiction, you would fall to the extent of, you know, living in a homeless shelter. That was really stark for me. And the second example she gave was uh, people who had just never had a home. People who homelessness was just their way of life, never having a bed or having a roof over their heads was their way of life. And I think that's probably the sort of homelessness I would have been more accustomed to if I had to tell a story of, of, of homelessness. But, you know, she used the word dignity and compassion a lot throughout your conversation. And, you know, it occurred to me you know, my Catholic self is going to come out now, that really and truly only by the grace of God are we not homeless people, right? Because anyone, I could have an addiction that causes me to lose everything and not have people or, or services to support me. So I think what it did to me is it, it just brought out the humanity in, you know, in this kind of work and the fact that yeah, homelessness, it's a problem, but it's not always caused by people who just live reckless lives. There, you know, there are lots of other different angles to homelessness. If I just, you know, call it privileged, I just had never really thought about it like that. I, I wouldn't have imagined. Not that I thought that homeless people were at fault for being homeless. I always sort of see homeless people as something's wrong. Um, you know, there's some kind of illness involved and they've just not done this or it's alcohol. But it just never occurred to me that you really could just be homeless by circumstance, nothing that you've done wrong, but just circumstances. Through our social media connection, I've seen you doing interesting work in Lagos, in communities right. where there is extreme poverty. How do you connect the idea of homelessness in the United States and what's happening in Nigeria? That's a really good parallel to draw. So when you think about the work I've done in the community in Makoko, these aren't actually homeless people. So these are very poor people, of course, you know, who live in a community that's on stilts. So it's poverty, but these aren't people who are homeless. These are people who are extremely poor you know, surrounded by what remarkably is a pretty loving community that nurtures them. So in Nigeria, I'm not, I see homeless people on the streets, but I've never actually interacted or done work with homeless people per se. But the work that I do for charity is very poor people, but not necessarily homeless as in people who would live in a homeless shelter. One of the things that's interesting to me is that we frequently blame people who are yeah. in poor circumstances, in rough yeah. circumstances, for the condition that they're in. Is that a U.S. thing? Is that a global thing? As you've lived in different countries and traveled in different countries, have you seen that attitude? Is that an American attitude or is that a attitude that people, more privileged people tend to have around the world? You know, that's a really interesting question. I'll tell you why as I answer that question. This might actually be unfair, but I always have compassion. But there is something about homelessness in the U.S. that's a very different experience from homelessness in a society where there's abject poverty. Does that make sense? So whereas in Nigeria, I would never wonder what the homeless man or woman's story is, because I would just assume it's, yeah, it's poverty, right? But in the U.S., I always kind of think, well, I wonder what this guy or lady's story is. Gotcha. And when Julie talked about people who, you know, have fallen from grace, people who have had 
so much, but thanks to an addiction or some circumstance that is not natural caused by something or some action, it kind of made me think, yeah, that's, that's sort of how I think about homeless people in the first world. And that's actually not true. What else resonated with you from yeah. this episode? I, I highlighted this as I was taking my notes. She talked about the services they offer and how they connect people. And I was really fascinated by the whole idea of homeless people networking in soup kitchens and having conversations about, you know, where the services are and where people can go. I found really fascinating. The second thing she talked about was social media. You know, and, and I heard social media in my mind. I thought, well, how? And then she went on to explain, you know, about the fact that public libraries, people go to public libraries, even if they don't have devices to stay in touch with people. And I just thought this is an entire world. She also talked about people who come and they stay and then they go back out into the community and they can't cope. They lose jobs thanks to like the pandemic and people come back. So I realized there's a whole structure you know, so the way Adobe thought of homeless shelters before this conversation was really sort of Skid Row, Los Angeles, you know, like a makeshift shelters. I never would have imagined, maybe this is a, another question, I'll, I'll take a breather, but the way I envisioned or the way I thought about homelessness and homeless shelters is completely different from what St. Francis House is. And I have a question. I'm wondering if those types of facilities are the norm. I don't know the answer to that. Is this the typical or is this is this a rarity? I don't know if it's typical. I think it's definitely a model that is interesting and dignified mm. and focused on the dignity of the guests. And I, right. that's part of the reason I wanted to have Julie on. I'm not sure how many other similar facilities there are around the U.S., uh, but it, mm. it strikes me as as an approach that is one that ought to be replicated wherever Absolutely. wherever possible. I watched an interview over the weekend with the inventor of cell phones, mm. and he is now in his 90s, and he talked about the cell phone as a poverty elimination device. And he talked about the power of the cell phone and how it's being used, especially before it ever got to this spot in the Western world, in, in Asia, people who were extremely poor were using the cell phone as their mm -hmm. tool for connecting, for banking, for interacting with society. And it was fascinating to listen to him talk about his ideas and his view for mm. how technology can connect us. I think there's a traditional way of thinking about homelessness, at least in the U.S., where we think of people that are disconnected mm. from the rest of the world. And I have some experience with homelessness with people that are close to me, and they remained highly connected. We develop these ideas in our head and and right. about how people must be that that doesn't always mm. match reality. And it's funny you mentioned uh, the cell phone and the invention of the cell phone and how it became a connector. I remember, so I moved to Nigeria as in 2007 and I, I left again and came back in, in 2015. When I was growing up, mobile phones were not a thing right? Only the upper class had mobile phones. And I came back to a Nigeria where everybody has a cell phone. It's not even a status thing. Even really poor people seem to have cell phones. You know, thank God for this piece of technology that has the ability to bridge quite a gap. 
What else resonated with you? Yeah, so I love, as I was listening to the interview and trying to imagine how homeless people, how do you, know, how do you pick up and start over? So Julie talked about people who left and, and came back because they just couldn't cope. They fell back into addiction. They couldn't hold jobs. And my question was like, how do homeless people even, how do, you, how do they even have access to the stuff you need, the very basic things you need to get a job? And when she mentioned appointments at the Department of Motor Vehicles, I thought, wow, her networks were so strong, breaking barriers and, and making it possible for people who on their own ordinarily would not be able to go to a, a DMV to get a, a state ID or a driver's license. That ability to think out of the box and empower people to be independent really struck me. It's yes. talking to the guests and saying, what do you need? And, and yes. listening to them and then helping meet those needs. And to just to bolster the point about talking to guests and listening, she talked about the fact that she'd been working um, with the homeless for 16 years and she took every piece of feedback in sort of designing this abode, as it were. And I thought, wow, you know, what, what a remarkable thing that over such a long period of time, you got enough feedback and, and the blessing, quite frankly, um, to have the ability to build something and provide a place that suited the needs of those who, who would live there. I thought that was really powerful too. I really enjoyed that one. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I also really liked, I took notes that I'm sort of going through now. So you asked her what it taught her. And she talked about a forgiving heart. Question you asked was, you know, what is the compassionate response to homeless people? And when you asked that question, it took me back to the experience I shared at the beginning of this conversation. It wasn't a pleasant experience. And then, you know, she said exactly what I'd done as, you know, as a young teen, where she said, don't give them money. You know, you want to feed people, not just um, with money, but you want to lead them to a place where there is there is hope. Um, so she ended actually the way I began at 18 or 19. I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I should just minded my own business and just, you know, got on with it. But, you know, it was the right thing that I did, you know, as an 18 year old. Um, you feed people and you lead them in a positive direction. It's always interesting, I think, as we think about journeys that we go on in life, one of the journeys people sometimes go on is the journey of engagement within spaces that make them uncomfortable. And that can happen a lot when you're thinking about charity work. I think there's very easy charity work that can be done where you give money to a charity and that's the extent of your engagement. But there's also the work that people do where you come face to face with the challenges that others are facing in the world. That's mm -hmm. sometimes much more difficult and more challenging for people who aren't facing those challenges, but it can be very rewarding sometimes. I always come back to Lagos because it's where I live and it's where I sort of experience life on a daily basis. Um, but that power of engaging and just being face to face with challenges, as you put it, is, is such a... It's such a profound thing. We take so much for granted. I have four amazing kids who are doing amazing things and are well-traveled and just don't understand the concept of, of poverty in their lives. But they do get it because we live in a place where we're surrounded by, you know, so much, so many disadvantaged people. So, yeah, even my experience here, living here and working here and being 
you know, in close contact with that reality has also been a blessing. It's a great way to look at it, thinking of it as a blessing to be able to to engage on that level. I am very excited about uh, next week's episode. First of all, thanks to Julie for taking the time to talk with us as we have recorded these podcasts and released these podcasts. Julie was actually the first interview that I did and it's nice to have friends who are willing to say, I have no idea what you're going to do with this podcast, but I'm willing to go with you on the journey. And oh, and you see. and Crystal and Kevin uh, and Julie were all definitely part of that, as is uh, Jenny Grouse from the A.V. Grouse Band, uh, who have done the music for our podcast. Mm-hmm. I had a chance to sit down and talk with Jenny about mm-hmm. the band, about the music, and about their new album that's coming out on September 24th. And while it is a conversation that's all about music, it is also a conversation about life and the challenges that we all go through in life about mental health, about family, and about the ability of music to help us make it through the tough times as well. So I'm very excited about that. I'm looking forward to that one too. Life, mental health, family, friendship, and music. It was a fun conversation to record, and I can't wait to release it next week. The Key and Kite podcast was created and hosted by Carter Hedrick and co-hosted by me, Adobe Oniwinde. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please help us out and let other people know. You can also rate us and provide a review on your favorite podcast provider. You can also find us on Twitter, at Key and Kite Pod. The podcast is produced by Carter Hedrick. Music for the Key and Kite is written and performed by the Avery Gros Band. Their album, The Devil May Care, reached number 10 on the Billboard Blues album chart. Their next album, Telltale Heart, will be released on September 24, 2021. Learn more at avgrousband.com. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. Please join us again next week.